from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies, this is Pardes from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, a Pardes alum. This week, a more. Also this week, the schedule is now available for the Summer 2019 Executive Learning Seminar that will be taking place in Jerusalem at Pardes June 30th through July 4th. You can check out all the details, including the schedule, via pardes.org.il slash executive. This week, and more with Rabbi Mike Foyer. Rabbi Mike Foyer is a member of the Pardes faculty. And now, Rabbi Mike Foyer. No, Parsha Emor is filled with so many things that I almost don't know where to start. And in fact, it's not only filled with so many things, some of them actually repeat themselves throughout the Torah. There's a Sifri in Devarim, it's a Midrash Halacha, that says that there are three places in which the Torah gives us a list of the holidays. One is in Bamidbar, and it's there because, according to the Midrash, of the Korbanot, of the offerings. Another one is in the Book of Devarim, and it's there because of the intercalation of the calendar, that's and here in Vayikra, or as the Sifri calls it, Torat Kohanim, the Torah of the priests, it's because of Sidran. It actually just gives us their order. So let's start out with a little bit of order. It says in the 23rd chapter of Leviticus, in the fourth line, These are the set times of the Lord, the sacred occasions which you shall celebrate, each at its appointed Time. And this may be a familiar verse to those of you who indulge in the traditional liturgy because we've said it quite a number of times over Pesach. This is the, the koteret, the headline that introduces us to the fact that we're actually entering into a very special type of sacred time. It's not Shabbat, but rather it's one of the festival holidays. And if you want to understand the difference between Shabbat and the festival holidays, and really, what I want to do right now is delve into that difference through the lens of one particular set, but we're going to start with the big picture. If you want to understand that difference, you could do worse than looking at the Sforno on that verse. Because the Sforno says, right? What does it mean that these are the sacred or appointed times of God? Right? After the Torah, in a few verses ago, spoke about Shabbat, whose time is already fixed, as he quotes the Gemara in Psachim, and says, Shabbat he dikava anafshe. Shabbat sort of fixes itself. Then it starts to talk about the festivals, Asher Mo'adam, Kriat Beit Din, whose assigned time actually comes through the declaration of the Beit Din, of the High Court. Right? As it, it, it says uh, in the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah, Atem Afilo Shogagim, You can look at the details on the source sheet, but what he's essentially saying is that the difference between Shabbat and the festivals is who actually has the task of fixing them in lived time. Now, it's important to understand in general, and particularly for the discussion I want to have right now, that there is a a three-part structure to the Moadim, to sacred times within the mind of the Torah and within our sages. First, of course, comes Shabbat. It's the part of the fabric of creation. Right? That's why the Gemara that he's quoting, that the sort of quoting is there, it calls Shabbat also via the Kaima. It's just ex- existentially there. Even if, God forbid, there were no Jews in the world, Shabbat would still be the seventh day of creation and would come around every week. It's all top down. Then there are what we call the Moadim, the festival holidays, Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, these two are biblical commandments, right? They are an expression of divine intention, but they're fixed into our calendar 
by humanity, right? God gives over the capacity to sanctify time in this particular way to the Beit Din, and so they represent a very particular form of partnership. We're going to delve more into that as we go along, but I want you to understand the full picture. So there's Shabbat, which is all top-down. Then there's the Moadim, the festivals, which represent that partnership between God and Am Yisrael in the ability to bring sacred time into the world. And then there's a third level of the rabbinic holidays, Purim, Hanukkah, the ninth of Av. Now these are historical events which occurred within human time. But the wisdom of the sages was such that they were able to look at that historical event, to extract its essential message, and to fix it into our calendar for all time. I mean, after all, Purim could have just been a wacky festival day, and Hanukkah could have just been a celebration of victory. But by unveiling the depth of the message within each of them, Purim, the hidden and the revealed, Hanukkah, the struggle of light and darkness, the sages were able to extract from the particular local historical experience an essential message which was relevant for all ages. And by the by, seeing as the season is almost upon us when you're listening to this, this is the challenge that we face with days like Yom Ha'atzma'ut, Israeli Independence Day. Do we have the capacity to really look into what is a, a celebration of a particular historical event and extract the essential message that's still going to be re- relevant to our children's children's children a thousand years from now? Because if we don't, we run the risk of this just becoming a day of barbecues. So that's a task for you going forward. It's not really one I want to talk about right now. Because what I want to do is to hone in on a specific day within this list that Parshat and Moore gives us. Or In reality, I want to hone in on the lead-up to that day. As it says in the 23rd chapter, lines 15 and 16, another familiar set of verses, if you indulge, as I said in the traditional liturgy, Right, you, from the day on which you bring the sheaf of elevation offering, the day after the Sabbath, shall count off seven weeks. All right? They have to be complete. You can count until the day after the seventh week, 50 days, and then there'll be an offering of new grain to the Lord. This is what we call Sfirat HaOmer. Now, now it's not the time or place to get into the full depth of Sfirat HaOmer, but there's a fundamental question that really hovers over this entire idea, which is, why does Shavuot, why does the Chag of celebrating the receiving of the Torah get a divinely ordained preparatory period. Now, one answer could be that if you're anything like me, you're so burned out from Pesach at this point that you might just let it slide and fall backward into this holiday. But another answer, perhaps one more satisfying, given by the Svarim Kedoshim, the books of the Kabbalists, teaches us that on Leil Seder, on the night of redemption, we are offered what's called Mochin de Gadlut, an expansive consciousness, a way of knowing the world which is really beyond our capacity to internalize. There's some light that comes into our lives on that night which is beyond anything we could ever expect. The challenge, of course, is that when you wake up in the morning, you can't hold it. That's the nature of mochin the godlus, of a consciousness which is beyond that which you normally know. And so the task from Pesach to Shavuot, from that moment of liberation from slavery to the receiving of the Torah, which is true freedom, you have to piece together the kalim, the vessels that can hold your most expansive consciousness. And that's a lot of what the avoda of the service 
of Svirata Omer is. Now, my goal right now isn't to go through all of what are called the Midot, these seven attributes of the divine relationship, right? Because that's what the Sefirot really are. They're modes of relationship between creator and creation. I'm not going to go through them all right now. But if you're curious, by the way, I have a set of podcasts on that. You can send me an email, and I'm happy to shoot it right back to you. For right now, what I want to do is actually just think about Sefirot Omer as a whole system, as its own moed, its own appointed time, and its role in the preparation for Mahmad Har Sinai, for standing at Sinai. Because standing at Sinai happened once upon a time, and we recognize it every year, and just recognize it, we relive it. In the same way, on Seder night, the Mishnah tells us that we have an obligation to see ourselves as if we ourselves came out from Egypt, so too you'll find a lot in the liturgy and in learning around Shavuot that we're supposed to really stand at Sinai. And if you want to really stand at Sinai, you have to go through the Omer. And if you're going through the Omer, you have to know what's the goal. And that, in fact, the Torah tells us. If you look into Exodus 19, lines 5 and 6, you'll see God's introduction, as it were, to what it takes to stand at Sinai. Now, if you will listen faithfully to me and keep my covenant, you'll be my treasured possession among all the people, right? All the earth is mine. And you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words, God says, that you should speak to the children of Israel. Now, depending on who you are and how you see the world, there may be a lot of trigger phrases there. Treasured possession amongst all the people, kingdom of priests, holy nation. I can't possibly address every difficult notion of the Torah right now. And it seems that they're all lumped together here. And it deserves a deep reflection of why these lines in particular are God's introduction to giving the Torah. And not just the introduction. Apparently, they're the essence of God's promise. Did you hear the if-then? If you will obey me faithfully and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession amongst all the people. So in particular, I want to dig a little bit into this notion of the kingdom of priests, Mamlech Kohanim, and how it relates to this obligatory sacred time of preparation that we have between Pesach and Shavuot. And I want to do it through Parshat Emor. You ready for that? Because Emor starts out with the Kohanim, with the priests. And it doesn't exactly make their life sound so desirable. I mean, who they can mourn, who they can't mourn, who they can marry, who they can't, who's physically qualified to even do their job, and who's not. And above all else, holy, holy, holy. Be careful not to desecrate my name. Be holy. And lying behind it all, at least to the modern ear, is this issue that there's no choice. Aaron didn't choose to become a Kohen, and none of his descendants were asked either. This is actually an expression of one of the aspects of the Torah's worldview, which is quite difficult for those of us who live in the postmodern world even to understand. We live in a world where consent is a sacred value, and where the choice to do something is what indicates how much value I place on it. And this is also true in the Torah, as we will see at the end, but in many ways, the Kohen represents 
a value other than choice. And it might, in fact, be a value which is higher than choice. Because what exactly does the word kohen mean? I know if I ask you, you'll tell me priest. And then if I ask you what that means, you'll say, uh. But fortunately, the Torah never leaves us asking. If you look back, in the 28th chapter of Exodus, in line 3, you'll see it says, right? Now go and speak to all those who are wise of heart, who have filled with the spirit of wisdom. These are the people who are going to make the big day kahuna, the clothes that will really transform Aaron into his new role. Right? And they should make the clothing of Aaron to sanctify him. Lee. Now, what does that lechahano li mean? In order that he serve me as a kohen. Right? It's, a, it's, a, it's a very interesting construct of the word. And Rashi picks up on it. Right? Rashi says on, on that very verse, lechahano li, who the kodsho, made to sanctify him, means lechahniso bikuna ayedea bigadim. Right? Shehiyeh. Kohen Li, right? That you're going to bring him into the priesthood through these clothes. The clothes make the man, after all, in order that he should be a Kohen. And that's what we're looking for. And he says, what does the word Kuna actually mean? It means service. The Kohen is the living embodiment of the value of service. That's why, in my humble opinion, the proper translation of the word Kohen is not priest, but rather minister, because minister holds those two sides of the equation of the service of God that a priest implies, but also the service of humanity who ministers to their need. And in fact, we see in the Haftorah of Parshat Emor, which is the 44th chapter of Yechezkel, both these roles. Right, the Gohan is meant to serve God in the temple, fulfilling that sacred and critical task which was handed over to Am Yisrael to maintain a connecting point between heaven and earth, and in particular in the temple. As it says in the Haftorah there, it's Yechezkel 44, 16. Right, they alone may enter my sanctuary, and they alone shall approach my table to minister to me, Vishamru et Mishmarti, and keep my charge. This is the task of a Kohen. It's assigned to them, and no one else, no matter how badly they want to, is fit to do it. But that's not all that the Kohen does, because they also serve the people by teaching them. As it says a little bit further on in Yechezkel, I'm teach my people the difference between the sacred and the mundane and between the pure and the impure and they're going to decide their lawsuits and teach them the rules it's a very worthwhile verse to read they'll preserve my teachings and my laws regarding all my fixed occasions all my moadai and they'll keep my shabtotai kadshehu right um sorry kadeshu and they'll maintain the sanctity of my sabbaths so in essence a kohen is a minister he ministers to god by maintaining that sacred connection between heaven and earth. And he ministers to the people by teaching them. And of course, you'll see that he therefore serves as a bridge between the two. And that last line about Moadin and Shabbatot really brings me back to the Omer, because you're probably wondering at this point, what does this have to do with Sfirat HaOmer? Because like I said, within Am Yisrael, the Kohanim 
don't represent choice at all. They were chosen long ago, and their status now is intrinsic. Think of them as a soldier drafted into national service. They're going to fight the battles of their nation whether they want to or not. And so too the Kohen has been drafted by God to serve as that bridge between heaven and earth and to teach. Aaron and its sons, as it says all throughout the beginning of our Parsha and more, holy, 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 devoted and separate and intrinsic in their jobs. But what's interesting to me is that when it comes to being Mamlechet Kohanim, this nation of ministers, there's apparently a process we all have to go through. Oh, we may have been chosen and the Torah already given at Sinai, just like Aaron was chosen, but every year we return to this process of receiving the Torah at Shavuot, which means that every year we return to the process of creating or recreating ourselves as a nation of ministers. Now, you have to remember that within Am Yisrael, the Kohanim minister between God and Israel, but Am Yisrael as a nation of ministers, is meant to serve between God and the whole world. And that's a task that demands a step-by-step intensive preparation. It's a transformative process that can ready us all to be both teachers to the world. And of course, every good teacher has to be able to meet their student where they are and a national bridge between heaven and earth, something which is quite relevant to think about how it might look as Yom Ma'ut approaches. And last but certainly not least, what's interesting to me is that apparently there's an element of choice that comes in at this stage. If you look in the Rambam, at the end of the laws of Shemitah and Yovel, the seventh year and the 50th year cycle, he speaks about the role of the tribe of Levi. He speaks about their role as not having an inheritance in the land and, and how their inheritance really comes from God and that it's an exchange in, in, in return for their devotion to God. And remember, they didn't choose that devotion, but in return to their being chosen as devoted property, as it were. So they lost their rights to property in the land, but they receive certain sacred portions, which is why this law comes at the end of the whole section of the Rambam discussing the laws of agriculture in the land. But then he goes on and he says, Veloshevet Levi Bilvad. And we're not this is not only true by the tribe of Levi. And the Kol Ish Vish, Mikol Bayolam, anybody, anybody in the whole world, Asher Nadvaru Choto, right, whose spirit causes him to volunteer, moves him to devote themselves to the service of the Lord. Right? Right? To divide himself in order to stand before God. And serve the avdol adet Hashem halach yeshar kamoshe asaw alim, right? It's a beautiful. You should really read it in the source sheet. Right, He's walking upright after casting off his neck the yoke of of uh, many a cunning wile that men had contrived. It's like a very interesting. Now this person is indeed divinely concentrated, right? Harizet nit kadesh kodesh kadoshim. They are indeed divinely consecrated, and the Lord will forever and ever be their portion. It's interesting. Aaron was chosen, and his children will serve against their will. And that's what the beginning of Parshat Amor is all about. But what the Rambam is telling us here is that anybody who wants to truly be a Kohen, maybe not in their ability to serve God in the temple, 
but certainly in their devotions, he said, to walk uprightly and devote themselves to the service of the Lord. Remember, the service of the Lord in this case can't be serving in the temple. It can only be that aspect of teaching. Who wants to maintain that bridge between heaven and earth to minister to the world by bringing the wisdom of the Torah out to wherever the people need it? Anybody who chooses to do so is indeed divinely consecrated on the same level that Aaron and his sons were as well. And the Rambam then says God will provide for their needs as he did for the priests and the Levites. And David Amalekh, King David, declared, Right, The Lord is my allotted portion and my cup. You hold my lot. And this is a message I think that we can all take with us here at the heart of the counting of the Omer. That God said that we have the capacity to be a nation of ministers. And that that capacity is what allows us to truly receive the Torah. And the Rambam's pointing out to us that our choice to stand before God, to let go of all the dictates, what do you call them? The cunning wiles of the day which men contrived, and to devote ourselves to that divine service transforms us into that mamlecha koanim, that nation of ministers who can truly receive the Torah on Shavuot. So this is just a little bit of thought of how to prepare ourselves during this time of counting of the Omer. May we all be blessed to stand together at Sinai a few weeks ahead. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Rabbi Foyer. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pardes from Jerusalem. Jerusalem.